Good morning. In today's headlines, Congressman Matt Gates takes the GOP political squabbling to a no up a notch by calling for a vote to oust House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. We have more on that and reactions from other lawmakers. We bring you the biggest takeaways from day one of former President Trump's fraud trial. What's at stake for him if he loses the expected appeal? A legal analyst weighs in. A state senator from North Dakota was killed in a plane crash in Utah on Sunday. His wife and two young children also died in the crash. We have the details. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is heading to Central America this week as city officials scramble to deal with an illegal immigration overflow. Meanwhile, the city is calling for budget cuts amid ballooning costs. We hear from New Yorkers. A 104-year-old sets a new skydiving record. Find out what she has to say about her tandem jump. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today's Tuesday, October 3rd. Well, it looks like the verbal jabs between Speaker McCarthy and Representative Gates finally boiled over. Well, it seems like some may have saw it coming, but and then that's also our top news today because that's political infighting between Republican Representative Matt Gates, who followed through on his threat to try to oust House Speaker Kevin McCarthy yesterday. The congressman called for a vote to vacate McCarthy's chair, and today's Daniel Monahan has more on the direct challenge to McCarthy's leadership. Chair will now entertain requests for one-minute speeches. Gates said he was filing a motion to vacate that would force a vote to remove McCarthy as Speaker. Resolved that the office of Speaker of the House of Representatives is hereby declared to be vacant. Whether he will succeed is unclear. Republicans control the chamber by a narrow 221 to 212 majority, and it would take as few as five defections to threaten McCarthy's hold on power if all Democrats vote against him. Gates says if the Democrats want to own Kevin McCarthy, they can have him. Because one thing I'm at peace with is when we stand here uh, a week from now, I won't own Kevin McCarthy anymore. He won't, be, he won't belong to me. So if the Democrats want to adopt him, they can adopt him. McCarthy responded on Twitter writing, bring it on. Gates says he feels the weight and judgment of history on his shoulders. And if this country's going down and if we're losing the dollar, I am going down fighting. And I don't care if that means fighting Republicans, Democrats, the Uniparty, the leadership, the PACs, the lobbyists. I've had it. Representative Nancy Mace says she empathizes with Gates over his frustrations, speaking on The View, saying McCarthy hasn't delivered on some promises he made to her either. I come from South Carolina. When I look you in the eye and I shake your hand and I make a promise and I keep it, I expect you to keep it too. Representative Victoria Sparts says Gates forcing leadership to take responsibility is very important. It's very hard to challenge your own party. And if my party doesn't deliver, I have to take full accountability. So it's good to put pressure on your own speaker. But if McCarthy is ousted, who would replace him? Congressman Tim Burchett believes Representative Chip Roy would be a wise choice. But I'm sure now he's scared that I've said his name. He's probably going to look under his car before he starts it as he walks out of here. Representative Mike Lawler criticized Gates, calling his motives personal. Lawler says if Democrats want to align themselves with Gates to undermine the House, that's a choice they'll have to make. This is somebody who they have derided for uh, years uh, and 
uh, who has been under ethics investigation. McCarthy also addressed the possibility of Gates working with Democrats to force him out, speaking on Face the Nation. He's reached out to Swalwell, to AOC and others, but if that's the way we're going to govern, I don't think America is going to be successful. No House speaker has ever been removed using a motion to vacate. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. More on politics. As part of averting the government shutdown, Congress is also freezing new aid to Ukraine. But the White House says a new aid package is on the way. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. In giving in to a key demand by some Republicans, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy dropped any additional aid for Ukraine in the last-minute bill to fund the government. But the White House on Monday said it will soon announce a new aid package for Ukraine. And if Putin thinks he can outlast us, he's wrong. We will have another package of aid for Ukraine soon to signal our continued support. According to the White House, the U.S. has already sent around $80 billion to Ukraine since the war began. And President Biden is urging Congress to negotiate an aid package as soon as possible. Stop playing games. Get this done. But the push to send more money to Ukraine comes amid concerns by the Biden administration itself over corruption in Ukraine. It recently released document by the State Department says Ukraine needs, quote, reforms in the energy sector and a bastion of corruption and oligarchic control. It asks that Ukraine cannot afford to push reforms to a post-war period. And Republican lawmakers remain divided on whether funding Ukraine is the right priority. There is no way that we can abandon Ukraine. I tell you, that's not a mission the American people support. All this as the Pentagon has warned Congress in a new letter that has, quote, exhausted nearly all available security assistance funding for Ukraine. As it's urging Congress to approve more aid, it notes that it's been, quote, forced to slow down the replenishment of our own forces to hedge against an uncertain funding future. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. Congressman Henry Cuellar was carjacked in Washington, D.C. last night. The Texas Democrats' chief of staff says three armed assailants approached Cuellar when he was parking his car. He says the congressman was not harmed and is working with local law enforcement. Cuellar's office says his phone and iPad were stolen with his car. His vehicle has been recovered. D.C. police say the incident happened around 9.30 p.m. U.S. Capitol Police said detectives are working to track down three male suspects. The carjacking took place roughly a mile from the Capitol. An MPD crime alert is asking the public to call 911 if they see the suspects. Former President Trump calling the New York fraud case against him a disgrace as what's expected to be a months-long trial is now underway. Trump is accused of filing false financial statements to benefit his business. Entity's legal correspondent has more details. Former President Trump was stopped by a barrage of media as he entered the courthouse on Monday to face a financial fraud trial. The New York Attorney General Letitia James has accused Trump and his sons of repeatedly filing false financial statements to inflate his net worth. This is a continuation of the single greatest witch hunt of all time. Dressed in a blue suit and tie, Trump said the upcoming trial was a scam. We have a rogue judge. We have a racist attorney general who's a horror show who ran on the basis that she was going to get Trump before she even knew anything about me. Monday started day one of a three-month trial. 
Trump and his adult children are accused of repeatedly inflating property valuations on bank loan and insurance applications. James, a Democrat, is seeking $250 million in penalties and a ban on Trump doing business in New York. Good morning, everyone. Donald Trump and the other defendants have con committed persistent and repeated fraud. My message is simple. No matter how powerful you are, no matter how much money you think you may have, no one is above the law. Judge Arthur Angeron, who is presiding over the trial without a jury, will make the final determination. Last Tuesday, Angeron ruled on a major element of James' suit, deciding that Trump had overvalued his assets and committed fraud. While Trump's legal team appeals that decision, the trial will address six other related claims and determine the amount of damages owed. In a packed courtroom on Monday, Trump's attorneys defended his actions as lawful. They stated that banks vetted his financial information before approving it. Outside of the court, they said this is election interference. We just heard Letitia James make comments that nobody is above the law. I think that's quite rich, considering that anybody that's a Democrat, including the Biden family, seems to be above the law every day. The attorney said Trump is leading by 10 points in the polls and that this trial is part of an attempt to stop him from running. If Trump's appeal is unsuccessful, his control over major real estate holdings could be in jeopardy. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Let's dive deeper into Trump's fraud trial. We're bringing in a legal analyst to unpack this. Peter Flaherty, chairman and CEO of the National Legal and Policy Center, joins us live. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. So what's at stake for Trump if the expected appeal fails? Well, I think that uh, this is essentially a political process. I think that uh, in a perverse way, all this persecution of Trump has actually helped Trump. Uh, he was not the odds-on favorite uh, a few months ago for the Republican nomination. But the Democrats, I think, correctly have decided that the more you make Trump a martyr, the more the Republican base will rally around him. And still, even though the polls show Trump ahead, they still prefer to run against Trump than anyone else. So also, Lindsay, it's going to be up to the judge to decide what to make of those accusations that Trump falsely inflated the values of his properties to get better loan terms. But what do you think is the biggest takeaway from day one at the trial? The biggest takeaway is that our democracy is being debased. Uh, for a judge to rule that um, a businessman in New York uh, can no longer do business there and may have to forfeit all his assets, this is the kind of thing that happens uh, in Russia. Uh, we are converging uh, with uh, Russia, I would say. Uh, the leading candidate of the opposition party, they're trying to put him in jail. They're censoring the media. They've turned the intelligence and internal security uh, forces like the FBI into partisan entities. Uh, they're coercing corporate America to uh, uh, support their woke agenda or else. Uh, Elon Musk is finding that out now. And I think that uh, it's a very dangerous time for our country. I don't think we've ever seen anything like this. Echoing some of your predictions there, we've seen the mugshot actually do a lot to boost Trump's campaign finances. So what's next in this trial? What's next is that, um, th well, the judge has already found that Trump engaged in fraud. Uh, I don't think that's uh, accurate. What Trump engaged in was uh, was business. 
But in any case, now he has to decide what the penalties are. And as I say, he can ban him from doing business in New York State, and he can uh, take away his business licenses, and he can even have him forfeit or force him to sell his properties. So how are they going to work out how many damages he has to pay, if any? Uh, I don't know. Uh, we have this judge who uh, dropped any pretense of jurisprudence yesterday by, by laughing and carrying on. This is the guy who's going to determine what a skyscraper is worth. Uh, he already uh, badly misjudged how much Mar-a-Lago is worth, saying it was worth uh, as little as $18 million. Uh, people in Palm Beach said that's a joke. It's worth much more, maybe as much as $300 million. Well, Peter Flaherty, I enjoyed talking to you. This is from the National Legal and Policy Center. Thank you. Take care. LaFonza Butler will be sworn in as the successor for the late Dianne Feinstein. But who is she, and what can we expect? And a plane crash kills a North Dakota state senator and his family. Find out what happened. And the missing nine-year-old girl has been found safe inside a cabinet. Get the details coming up. Today, LaFonza Butler will be sworn in as the successor for the late Dianne Feinstein. But who is she and what can we expect? We want to bring in Jackson Richmond for more on this. He is a Washington correspondent with the Epic Times. Good morning. Well, first, who is LaFonza Butler and what's her background? What can you tell us? Good morning. LaFonza Butler is the president of the pro-abortion group Emily's List. She resides in Maryland, but has roots in California, and uh, she comes from not just the uh, abortion movement, but also the labor movement, as she was a labor leader, um, becoming one at just the age of 30 years old. And she is going to be the first black uh, lesbian um, to be a United States First, yes, first black lesbian to be a United States senator. Hmm. And why do you think, why did Governor Gavin Newsom choose her? What was he looking for? Well, as Governor Newsom said before uh, Senator Feinstein's death, that he would appoint a black woman to succeed her were Feinstein not to make it to the end of her term. Now that, you know, that became the case, uh, Newsom kept his promise. Mm. Um, and what do you think can we expect, based on what we what you just mentioned from her background? What can we expect from Lafonda Butler in this interim position? What will she bring with her? Well, as I talked to one of her predecessors at Emily's List yesterday, Lafonda Butler is going to bring um, outsider experience, um, having been on the ground as an activist and she has held she's held no prior political experience so what I think what we'll see is a progressive outsider to this position and she's not without criticism one is living in Maryland um, though she's going to switch her voter registration to California if she hasn't done so already and two Earlier this year, she wrote a character 
uh, letter in support of former L.A. City Councilman Mark Ridley Thomas, who was sentenced to 42 months in prison on federal corruption charges. Hmm. Well, thank you so much, Jackson Richmond, for giving us these updates and these insights. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. And the a state senator from North Dakota was killed in a plane crash in Utah on Sunday. His wife and two young children also died in the crash. North Dakota State Senator Doug Larson was piloting the plane, carrying him, his wife, and their two young children. The plane crashed Sunday evening shortly after taking off from Canyonlands Airfield near Arches National Park. The family was visiting relatives in Scottsdale, Arizona and returning home. They stopped to refuel in Utah. Larson was a Republican first elected to the North Dakota Senate in 2020. The Federal Aviation Administration and National Transportation Safety Board said they are launching an investigation into the crash. A preliminary report is expected to come out within a, f a couple of weeks. Yes, and the nine-year-old girl who vanished from a state park in upstate New York was found safe yesterday following a two-day search. Authorities say a suspect is in custody in connection with her disappearance. Here's the story. New York State Police said Monday that nine-year-old Charlotte Cena was located in good health. The girl disappeared while riding her bike in Moreau Lake State Park during a family camping trip on Saturday. In a Monday night press conference, New York Governor Kathy Hochul said investigators identified a fingerprint from a ransom note. It was allegedly left by a suspect she named as Craig Nelson Ross Jr. Hochul said law enforcement linked Ross to a property owned by his mother and found him in a camper at around 6.30 p.m. She says police took the suspect into custody after some resistance and found Charlotte in a cabinet. Everyone in New York is breathing a collective sigh of relief right now. It was really an incredible uh, coordinated effort from so many agencies. It was extraordinary to see how they traced it down to an individual's home. The home was uh, surrounded by uh, law enforcement and helicopters, and they were able to bring her to safety. And uh, not long after, she was in the arms of her parents. About 400 people took part in the search Monday, up from more than 100 the day before. The search expanded over 46 linear miles by Monday, with much of the area heavily wooded. The park was closed because of the search. Federal authorities also issued a temporary flight restriction over the park for the safety of law enforcement air operations. Hochul said on X that she was extremely grateful to New York State Police, New York State Parks Police, and all partners who worked tirelessly to locate Charlotte and ensure she could return home safely to her family. We're going to switch up gears here and bring you some of the latest headlines. Over 40 discharged military members have been reinstated to active duty after being released for refusing the COVID vaccine. Military data says about 8,000 members were discharged between August 2021 to January 2023. Only 43 asked to be reinstated. The vaccine requirement was repealed as part of the National Defense Authorization Act. A trial date has been set in the bribery case against Senator Bob Menendez. A federal judge announced Monday that Menendez and his four co-defendants will go to trial May 6th. Menendez allegedly used his political influence to help Egypt and pressure state and local prosecutors who are investigating New Jersey businessmen. Microsoft CEO predicting a nightmare scenario for the Internet if Google goes unchallenged. 
Satya Nadella testified in the federal government's antitrust trial against the search giant. Google denies the charges and says there is plenty of competition among search engines. And a new study shows that parents shouting at their kids is as harmful as physical or sexual abuse. Long-term results could include depression, substance abuse, criminal behavior, or suicide. The study said it doesn't matter if it's parents, coaches, or teachers. The effect was the same. The journal Science Direct published the study. Just goes to show how important it is as an as a adult to keep um, keep your cool. Oh We're yeah. Not, well, yeah. And, and you know, you, you can imagine the, the swing there. If someone actually speaks rationally, they might actually get the message instead exactly. of becoming depressed. Good point. And also, you know, the Menendez bribery scandal that could really hurt the Dems in the in, the, in 2024. Yeah. Well, over almost 30 Democrats in the Senate have actually called for him to resign. Senator Cory Booker from his own state, New Jersey, being one of them. So more coverage coming up. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is heading to Central America this week as city officials scramble to deal with an illegal immigration overflow. Meanwhile, the city is calling for budget cuts amid ballooning costs. We hear from New Yorkers in just a moment. Good to have you back. New York City's illegal immigration crisis could be reaching a tipping point. Mayor Eric Adams is taking a four-day trip to Latin America this week as city officials scramble to deal with the situation. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the mayor's planned trip. Tensions between New York officials and the White House continue to grow as Mayor Eric Adams prepares to head to Central America. Adams' chief advisor, Ingrid Lewis-Martin, called on President Biden and the rest of the federal government to close the borders over the weekend. She suggested that migrants be moved throughout all states until the border is closed. New York Governor Kathy Hochul is also calling for Congress to put in more border controls, saying Sunday there should be limits on who can enter. Adams' office issued a travel advisory saying he leaves Wednesday this week to stop in Mexico, Ecuador, and Colombia. It bills the trip as a way to meet local leaders and learn about the path migrants take and the situations leading to increased U.S. arrivals. The New York City mayor plans to visit the infamous Darien Gap on the last day of his tour, a treacherous route between Panama and Colombia passed by hundreds of thousands of migrants over the last year. His visit to Mexico will be sponsored by the nonprofit U.S. Mexico Foundation. A spokesperson for Adams says the mayor will cover the bill for Ecuador and Colombia. He's set to return to New York on Saturday. New arrivals in the city are expected to soon reach up to 600 daily, an increase from a recent average of 3 to 400. City officials say they're trying to stem the flow by posting on social media and handing out flyers at the southern border telling people not to come. In Mexico, hundreds of migrants in the southern state of Oaxaca waited for buses north on Monday. It's part of a new government program meant to help manage the influx of arrivals. Officials opened the site last week. Migrants must pay a fare, leaving some waiting for money transfers or looking for work to raise funds. It's an effort to reduce the risks, with migrants gathering at local bus terminals in large numbers to buy bus tickets north. Mexico's president says 10,000 people reached the U.S.-Mexico border every day last week, and that roughly 6,000 people are entering southern Mexico daily. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Texas Governor Greg Abbott visited New York City last week to address the illegal immigration situation. Yeah, a rare visit, and that's the same city where he's been sending buses of illegal immigrants. Abbott praised Mayor Adams and Governor Hochul for pressuring President Biden on the crisis. 
The financial burden is putting a lot of pressure on the city. I went out to investigate. Take a look. I'm here at the Roosevelt Hotel that has served as an intake center for some of the 60,000 illegal immigrants that have arrived in New York City recently. We're here to discuss some of the long-term impacts. Daniel DiMartino, a graduate fellow at the Manhattan Institute, joins us now. Thank you for your time, Daniel. Thank you, Kevin. Is there an end game to New York City's migrant crisis? Well, I think the limit that the city's going to reach is that there is a policy that's in place that's causing all of these problems in the city. That's the reason why migrants are staying in this hotel next to me. And that is that we have a policy called right to shelter, meaning that anybody can show up who just arrived to the United States and say, I need free housing paid for by the government. And that's exactly what the city is doing. And so this hotel right here is costing a quarter of a billion dollars to the city to uh, put people in there. And in general, it's costing billions of dollars, all the 60,000 people that are here from all over the world. And the end game is that the resources are not infinite. And the major has already warned that they're going to have to cut NYPD budget, trash collection. They're going to have to cut healthcare. They're going to have to cut education, all to pay for free housing for people who just arrived. So, Daniel, the city is projecting that the cost of this crisis is going to balloon to $12 billion by fiscal year 2025. Is this sustainable? Well, it's not because this is much more than the city's budget, even for all the sanitation department that collects the trash, that doesn't even correctly collect the trash in the city. And look, New York City has a history of accepting and welcoming immigrants from all over the world. Illegal immigration is not a new problem to New York City. The thing that's new is that we're giving them free housing, and that's what needs to stop. The governor has called for Biden to give them work permits. They're not here because they don't have work. They're here because they get free, free housing. Illegal immigrants have worked illegally for decades in this country. And so, you know, the issue certainly starts at the border, but the, it needs to end in New York City's right to shelter. One passerby referenced legal immigration to address this crisis stemming from illegal immigration. And this is not unheard of. You know, back when my folks, when my family came here, 100,000 refugees arrived in New York through Ellis Island. That's how my family got here. We know how to do this. We've done it before. We need to look at our our you know, the way that we give out work permits so that people can come here with some dignity and be able to contribute. Mayor Adams announced there could be 15% budget cuts across all city agencies by spring in response to the migrant crisis. I'm in agreement with it. Someone has to help and 15% wouldn't be much. He disappointed me with this um, aspect of um, of management, with, with the immigration issue. And What do you think should be done? I think you should put a quota. 100,000, that's it, go to the next city, send them back. And we, you know, you have to maintain what we have. We can't degenerate the city to a point where everything goes bankrupt. Um, I think you've got to look after your own people first. And um, we've got the same problem back in the UK. And I'm not too happy about it. I think rules are there for a reason and you've got to stick by them and I think they should be enforced. So I'm not for allowing illegal immigration into the country. I'm all for having lawful immigration for people who are going to make a contribution to society. But um, when it's illegal, you don't know where they're from, what their background is, why they're here. And um, I think it's wrong.
The Manhattan Institute suggests Mayor Adams unilaterally end the right to shelter for illegal immigrants. No response from the mayor's office on that yet. And if Adams ended the right to shelter, he would probably be sued, maybe by an immigrant advocacy group. But that's still what Manhattan Institute is suggesting. Right. Yeah, good report. And I mean, it, it is hard probably to turn back time because then what are you going to do with all these people that are in those hotels? And Upset New York um, is rejecting sending the migrants there. Right. Yeah. And even Adams' chief advisor is urging the federal government to close the border, a border that DHS Secretary Mayorkas says is not open. Well, heading to break now, millions of borrowers are paying back federal student loan once again with less money on hand. How would the repayment affect the nation's economy? NTD business host Don Ma breaks it down. And that voice you recognize on the phone might not be your son. AI voice phone scams are big business for criminals, bringing in billions every year. We tell you how to protect yourself when we come back. Welcome back. The Biden administration's energy department is rolling out a new wave of restrictions on home and commercial appliances. The proposed rules are attracting opposition from lawmakers and critics for the potential impact on consumers. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. The Department of Energy's energy conservation standards are soon expanding to include a wide range of commercial and consumer appliances. The DOE announced new energy efficiency standards for residential gas furnaces, the latest in a wave of restrictions. That's according to the semi-annual Unified Agenda, a list federal agencies prepare on regulations planned within the next year. The latest agenda list is not absolute, but offers a peek into agencies' outlook for American consumers. Critics of the move say it will raise upfront costs on most items, restrict choice, and keep evolving to cover more and more appliances. Some of the appliances and equipment include dishwashers, dehumidifiers, electric motors, clothes dryers, microwaves, and ceiling and furnace fans, among others. While some equipment is under the proposed rule stage, others are in the final stage. Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm says the new standards will slash harmful pollutants and lower costs for families by reducing usage. The agency estimates its standards for residential furnaces would save Americans $1.5 billion in utility bills annually. Bill pay manager Doxo estimates that's roughly 0.4% of the $380 billion Americans spend on utilities each year. Lawmakers and multiple organizations have opposed the Biden administration's move, calling it government overreach and encroachment. Senator Marsha Blackburn said on X, first the left comes for gas stoves and washing machines, now the Biden administration wants to take away your water heater. What else will they take in the name of their socialist agenda? Senator Deb Fisher introduced the Save Our Gas Stoves Act in June to stop the Energy Department from bringing in costly standards on kitchen stovetops. Congresswoman Stephanie Bice called the proposed rule on ceiling fans unconscionable in a letter to the Biden administration, saying it would limit options for consumers during a period of hot weather and high inflation. She criticized other proposed rules on water heaters and gas stoves and said heavy-handed regulations would impose burdens on small businesses. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. For the first time in more than three years, federal student loan borrowers will be required to pay their monthly student loan bills starting this month. This will impact the wallets of up to 40 million Americans. And here to discuss is Entity Business host Don Ma. Good morning, Don. So 40 million Americans, how will it affect the economy? 
Yeah, Evelyn, that's a very important question. Um, so what I think is not only is this going to impact households, but it's also going to, you know, have a substantial impact on the economy. So let's just think about this for a moment. First of all, the U.S. economy, it's very consumer driven. So consumer spending accounts for, you know, around 70 percent of U.S. gross domestic product. Uh, that's a very important point. We have to keep that in mind. And what the resumption of student loan payments means is that uh, people will have less disposable income every month. Um, so if there's around 40 million Americans who owe student debt and each person averages uh, somewhere around uh, $300, some more, some a bit less, you know, that totals around $1.7 trillion that could be taken out of the economy. Uh, now, it's, it's hard for anyone to, you know, predict the future when it comes to the economy, but this definitely has the potential to slow it down when you're taking that much money out of it. Slow it down, as in there is a potential to, uh, to go into recession. Uh, you know, there's there's a saying that uh, you should never bet against the consumer, and the reason for that is because they seem to uh, frequently be able to come up with money from somewhere. So I don't want to say definitively that this could cause a recession, but you know, on the other hand, I don't want to discount the possibility either. Uh, the chief economist at Moody's Analytics said that. Uh, the economy will struggle in the fourth quarter. So will we see a recession? You know, it, it, time will only tell. Um, but I think what will directly be impacted are businesses like retailers, um, you know, like Macy's, Target, Best Buy, outlets like those. And Evelyn, there's another twist to this because the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has also found that student loan borrowers have fallen deeper into debt actually during the pandemic. And what that means is that more than half of borrowers actually have higher debt than they did before the pause on student loans. So all I can say is that there will be an impact on the economy. It's just a question of severity. Mm, well, I guess we can just wait and see. What else do you have for us? Yeah, sure. So the IRS is mailing warnings to millions of taxpayers who filed for 2022 income tax extensions. Payments are due by October 16th or late penalties will be uh, assessed. IRS uh, free file is available through October 16th. It lets qualified taxpayers prepare and file online using software. Though worth noting, those affected by the Maui wildfires or Hurricane Adalia have until February 24th to file. Uh, people affected by Vermont flooding have until uh, November 15th. And in other news, uh, this is a head up, heads up. Uh, this Wednesday at 2.20 p.m., FEMA will test its emergency alert system. All wireless phones will sound an alarm and receive a text saying this is only a test. Uh, it's the first time since 2021 the system has been tested nationwide. TV and radio will also sound the alert at the same time. The system is designed to create a national warning to people in case of emergency. The text will be broadcast in Spanish and English depending on your phone settings. It will also vibrate to alert those with disabilities, but you can turn off these alerts actually on your iPhone if you have one. Uh, but that's all from me this morning. Hmm. Very helpful and very timely reminders. Thank you so much for the updates. Don, host of Entity Business. Yeah, thank you as always. That voice calling you may not really be your son.
AI voice phone scams are bringing in big bucks for criminals who easily clone the voices of children and trick family members into giving them money. Entity's Emma Shi tells us how to protect ourselves. AI phone scams are on the rise. Last year, criminals stole an estimated $10 billion from Americans through these scams. They're ruthless. They're heartless. Cybersecurity expert John Young specializes in fighting these AI phone scams. He says the scammers generally target grandparents, using the voices of their grandchildren to persuade them that they've been kidnapped, that their car has broken down somewhere, or that they're in jail. The scammers then ask for money. A lot of them are from um, countries where if they make one score for, say, $1,000 or $2,000, they immediately go into entrepreneur mode and they start hiring other people. Suddenly they can hire 10 people to do it and then they, they have a few more of these successful scores and before you know it, you have a data center somewhere, a call center with tons of people. Young says many kids have videos on Instagram or TikTok so the scammers can easily find their voices and put them into AI software. In one scenario, the AI-generated voices frantically tell grandparents they've been kidnapped, and then the voice of the kidnapper will come on and order them to send money to a bank account. Ask a personal question. Is ask, hey, where did we go on vacation last time? Uh, what was your childhood nickname? Um, and and if that is not what you're expecting, that is then this is most likely fraud. AI expert Martin Rand says this is one way to confirm whether that voice is real, if you can get the question in before the supposed kidnapper butts in. Another way is to plan in advance. My favorite thing is to have a security word. So one of the security words we used a few years ago was carrot. So if any of my kids were calling, um, you know, and we felt like there was something off, we would just ask them what their security word. Tech entrepreneur Dan Martell says people should also trust their gut. If the person on the other end doesn't seem real, they probably aren't. Emma Shi, NTD News. And now let's head to the UK to Malcolm Hudson for some short headlines from around the world. Good morning from the UK, Evelyn and Kevin. The United Nations Security Council yesterday authorized a foreign security mission to Haiti to fight violent gangs. The move comes a year after the Caribbean country asked for help. The council authorizes the so-called multinational security support mission to take all necessary measures, code for use of force. A UN team visiting Nagorno-Karabakh in Azerbaijan did not see any damage to civilian infrastructure such as hospitals, schools and housing, nor did they encounter reports of violence against civilians after the ceasefire. The visit came after Azerbaijan took control of the enclave, triggering an exodus of more than 100,000 Armenians. Armenia has accused Azerbaijan of ethnic cleansing. Christian religious leaders in northern Iraq called for an international investigation into a deadly wedding fire that killed more than 100 people last week. They slammed the government's probe, which had blamed the blaze on negligence and lack of precautionary measures. One priest claimed the fire was intentional without offering any evidence. Turkish security forces detained nearly 90 people across the country overnight over suspected links to the outlawed Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK. It comes two days after a bomb attack in Ankara claimed by the group. The PKK is designated a terrorist organization by Turkey, the United States and the European Union. 
The president-elect of the Maldives said he will stick to his campaign promise to remove Indian military personnel stationed in the archipelago states. Mohamed Muiz said he wouldn't stand for a foreign military staying in the Maldives against the will of its citizens. It's a serious blow to India in its geopolitical rivalry with China in the Indian Ocean region. Muiz's party is viewed as heavily pro-China. That's all from me. Back to you both. Well... Yes, Malcolm, that's a good report. And, you know, they say the security situation in Haiti is deteriorating two years after President Jovenel Moïse was assassinated. Well, that's, that's right. And now 80% of the country is basically controlled, or of the capital is basically controlled by gangs. Yeah, and kidnappings and violence are on the rise, yeah. too. Very serious. And we're going to move into some lighter news now. Coffee lovers, rejoice. We bring in an expert to give us the details on the health benefits coffee can provide. And she's the world's oldest person to do a tandem parachute jump. We have her story and more when we come back. Welcome back. And this is just water to be sure, but coffee is a drink millions of Americans have every morning to kickstart their day. That's right. Studies have shown that coffee could have a ton of health benefits. So I sat down with Brandon Fallon, our health um, correspondent, to find out more. Take a look. Joining me now is our very own NTD health correspondent, Brendan Fallon. It's good to have you back. And I think you may or may not have some good news for me because I am an avid coffee drinker, obviously. So uh, what are the benefits that people can get from drinking coffee? Well, I'd say from the studies that have come out fairly recently, it, Drinking coffee seems to point to uh, a higher life expectancy. Um, we, we see reduction in, in death due to cancer, death due to all-cause mortality, and, and death due to heart disease from related to, to coffee drinking. So that's it's very favorable. Yeah, I think that's definitely good news for mm -hmm. me. Um, but I think we also do need to differentiate, right? Like, I know that you're being unbiased and very professional, but I also know that you have water in your cup. I guess it comes back to a so cause and association. So you have an association, people who drink a certain amount of coffee. I think it, it looks at um, one and a half to three cups per day. Um, over an extended period of time, they show these reductions. I, I think it's a 30% reduction in all-cause mortality if you, you're drinking your coffee with sugar, and uh, 19 to 20% in death due to cancer, just death due to heart disease, and death due to all-cause mortality if you're just, just from drinking coffee generally. Does that suggest cause? Uh, we, we don't know. I mean, there's perhaps there's uh, behavioral factors that need to be taken into consideration. Maybe it's the behaviors that associate, that associate with coffee drinking. Uh, the, the kind of social side, you, you go to the coffee, you go and brew your coffee, you're having a social experience with some people, it might uh, relieve some of your stress. That's just one example of how some, a factor that could also be influencing life expectancy in these situations. Is there anything else that you think people should know about the upsides or downsides of coffee? Well, getting into the, this, the molecular biology of it a little bit, it's quite interesting that the, the energy currency of our body, which is adenosine triphosphate, if you, you might remember from your bio, biology lessons back in high school, it's, it's very interesting because what, what breaks down from these, these molecules that, you know, for instance, allow our muscles to contract is adenosine. And it's, it's caffeine that acts on the same receptors as, as adenosine. So adenosine 
kind of balances us. It makes us, if we work hard, we're expelling energy with ATP. The byproduct is adenosine, which makes us feel drowsy. Caffeine acts on the receptors for adenosine. That's why it makes us alert, because it's, it's blocking that, the drowsiness that would come from, from the adenosine. So in some ways, this is, this is disrupting the natural balance of our body, because we have this, this economy of energy where we work and then as a result feel sleepy, we, and then at the right time of the day we'll sleep. If you're taking coffee, then you're, you're interrupting that and you're making yourself feel alert at a time when your body isn't necessarily feeling that. And that can, can kind of throw things out because the, that, the adenosine can accumulate in your bloodstream and kick in at a time when you don't want it to, and that can be one reason why people are feeling drowsy the next morning and they're, they're hanging out for that, that next coffee hit. But caffeine can also be a double-edged sword because at the same time that we see this disruption that can lead to a disruption of the body's energy cycle, uh, caffeine also acts on a, a different receptor that's associated with what, what are called beta amyloid plaques. And these are associated with Alzheimer's disease, the formation of these proteins in the brain. And this could explain why, why caffeine is also associated with a reduction in Alzheimer's disease. So there's, there's disadvantages and advantages, but the re there's plenty of research, I think, that's still waiting to be done and really to establish whether it is a case of just mere association or whether caffeine is really mm. causing these benefits that are being, uh, that are suspected. Well, Brendan, I think that was a very balanced view on the health benefits and downsides on coffee. And I think for now, I'll just have a good conscience still sipping my coffee. So thank you so much, Brendan Fallon, our NTD health correspondent. It's a pleasure, pleasure to be on again. Great hearing from Brendan. Yeah, I think so too. It seems like, yeah, it seems like there needs to be more research on this, right? Like he said, all, co all cause mortality. That's so broad. And who knows, maybe it's just the motivation that comes after having coffee, that you go out for a run or, you know, like interesting. he says, the well, social side. Yeah, and you know, it is interesting just looking at coffee and panacea in the same sentence, like it is a side-by-side -side comparison. And, you know, I think a lot of people may not even turn to coffee for the health benefits, but just for that kickstart, like we were mentioning. Yeah. And, and you know, I've, I've actually found that the little sprouts that you grow can give you a really a boost of energy, even though they're so tiny. Oh yeah, see, another, an, uh, one more thing that just, like I said, I will stick with coffee for now, but let's see. Okay, what day. about that thrill seeker though? <laughs> oh yeah. Speaking of health, a 104-year-old lady is definitely feeling it because she just became the world's oldest person to tandem skydive. Dorothy Hoffner started October off with a bang. On Sunday, she became the oldest person in the world to make a tandem skydive. Furthermore, she made her first ever jump on her 100th birthday. That's a brave woman. With a ride from Skydive Chicago, a tandem instructor from the U.S. Parachute Association, Dorothy had an exciting and successful jump. Her message to people is simple. Skydiving is a wonderful experience and it's nothing to be afraid of. Just do it. And the hardest part of the jump? It was wonderful. It was a nice, peaceful, and I had to, had to keep myself awake so I could see the, see the scenery. Peaceful. Okay, that's, that's one what, way to describe it. All that wind thought, in your face. Yeah. yeah, organizers are working to have Guinness certify Dorothy's jump. The current world record, 103 years in Sweden on May 29th, 2022. Wow, I wish, I hope I will be healthy enough at that age. That's awesome. Live yeah. the life to the fullest. That mobility. Yeah. Because you got to maneuver a little bit when you're in the air. 
Oh, so you did it before. No, I haven't, oh, but okay. I, I, I know people who have. Okay, I see, I yes. see. All right, and we're a couple seconds away from 8 a.m., so the second part of our broadcast starts now. Congressman Matt Gates takes the GOP political squabbling up a notch by calling for a vote to oust House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. We have more on that and reactions from other lawmakers. A Trump victory in the Supreme Court, a challenge to his appearance on the 2024 ballot rejected. And we hear key takeaways from an analyst on the first day of his civil fraud trial. Student loan repayments resume this month after a three-year pause while the Biden administration continues its debt cancellation efforts. 44 million borrowers have to figure out a payment plan. The UAW strike enters its third week as workers continue to walk off the job. Economic losses are reported in the billions. And police in Slovakia made an unusual stop. They pulled over a car with what appeared to be a dog driving. Welcome back and to everyone joining us now, good morning. Our top news today is around political infighting. That's right, Republican Congressman Matt Gates followed through on his threats yesterday to try and oust Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Gates has uh, called for a vote to vacate McCarthy's chair. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on the challenge to McCarthy's leadership. Chair will now entertain requests for one minute speeches. Gates said he was filing a motion to vacate that would force a vote to remove McCarthy as Speaker. Resolved that the office of Speaker of the House of Representatives is hereby declared to be vacant. Whether he will succeed is unclear. Republicans control the chamber by a narrow 221 to 212 majority, and it would take as few as five defections to threaten McCarthy's hold on power if all Democrats vote against him. Gates says if the Democrats want to own Kevin McCarthy, they can have him. Because one thing I'm at peace with is when we stand here uh, a week from now, I won't own Kevin McCarthy anymore. He won't, be, he won't belong to me. So if the Democrats want to adopt him, they can adopt him. McCarthy responded on Twitter writing, bring it on. Gates says he feels the weight and judgment of history on his shoulders. And if this country's going down and if we're losing the dollar, I am going down fighting. And I don't care if that means fighting Republicans, Democrats, the Uniparty, the leadership, the PACs, the lobbyists, I've had it. Representative Nancy Mace says she empathizes with Gates over his frustrations, speaking on The View, saying McCarthy hasn't delivered on some promises he made to her either. I come from South Carolina. When I look you in the eye and I shake your hand and I make a promise and I keep it, I expect you to keep it too. Representative Victoria Sparts says Gates forcing leadership to take responsibility is very important. It's very hard to challenge your own party. And if my party doesn't deliver, I have to take full accountability. So it's good to put pressure on your own speaker. But if McCarthy is ousted, who would replace him? Congressman Tim Burchett believes Representative Chip Roy would be a wise choice. But I'm sure now he's scared that I've said his name. He's probably going to look under his car before he starts it as he walks out of here. Representative Mike Lawler criticized Gates, calling his motives personal. Lawler says if Democrats want to align themselves with Gates to undermine the House, that's a choice they'll have to make. This is somebody who they have derided for 
uh, years uh, and uh, who has been under ethics investigation. McCarthy also addressed the possibility of Gates working with Democrats to force him out, speaking on Face the Nation. He's reached out to Swalwell, to AOC and others, but if that's the way we're going to govern, I don't think America is going to be successful. No House speaker has ever been removed using a motion to vacate. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Congressman Jamal Bowman, the Democratic House member that recently pulled a fire alarm at the Capitol complex, is in the spotlight again, this time for an internal office memo that refers to some Republicans as Nazi members. Bowman has since condemned the use of the term, saying it was inappropriate and used in the memo without his consent. The memo was in response to talks of GOP plans to try and expel Bowman from Congress after being accused of intentionally disrupting a House vote. The fire alarm incident is currently under investigation. Trump did score a win in a separate legal battle yesterday. The Supreme Court declined a case that sought to disqualify the former president from running for office. The appeal was brought by John Anthony Castro, a long-shot candidate for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination. Citing the 14th Amendment, Castro sued Trump earlier this year for his alleged role in the January 6th Capitol breach. Castro said he is still pursuing actions in liberal-leaning appeals courts. More trial dates are scheduled for later this month. Let's learn more about the Supreme Court's decision not to take up the 14th Amendment case to try and keep Trump off the ballot. Will Scharf, a former federal prosecutor and who, and also a attorney general candidate in Missouri, is joining us live. It's good to have you with us, Will. Always good to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. So the person who's actually bringing this case, John Anthony Castro, he said that the case has been rejected because of a lack of standing, but now he's filed in Nevada and he's on the ballot, so now he has standing. So what's your reaction to this? Uh, I, I don't think his filing is necessar necessarily determinative with respect to standing. I think if the Supreme Court had wanted to take this case up, they could have. The fact that they decided not to, uh, I think is very interesting and will likely uh, be repeated in, uh, in cases to come. Right, in those cases, are you referring to the state challenges similar to this? So there are two other cases that legal analysts are watching. One is brought by Crew, which is a, a left-wing ethics group in the state of Colorado. And there's another case uh, currently pending in Minnesota. All of these cases revolve around, uh, I believe it's Article 3 of the 14th Amendment, uh, which was uh, really designed for and used to prevent Confederates from being on the federal ballot in the aftermath of the Civil War. Uh, most legal analysts, most legal analysts that I respect certainly, have said that the application of this clause to President Trump is uh, is just wildly wrong. And I think the courts will ultimately vindicate that that principle. And the left-leaning group Free Speech for People is also writing the secretaries of state in many states, New Hampshire, New Mexico, Ohio, et cetera. Can you give us any update on what's happening there? So those cases will eventually hit the courts. All of this will ultimately be litigated. Uh, my strong suspicion uh, is that President Trump will be on the ballot in all of these states come November 2024. Uh, and I don't think any of these efforts will ultimately bear any fruit legally because I just don't think the law is there. I don't think there is a legal ground under the 14th Amendment uh, to exclude President Trump based on any of his actions. And I want to 
touch on a different topic here. What do you think was the key takeaway from Trump's civil fraud trial? Look, I think that we have a case in New York where a left-wing attorney general uh, brought a case in front of a favorable jurisdiction uh, to try to get Trump. This has been part of a, a many year long effort at this point that involves both uh, now criminal and civil cases. I think you have a judge there who the, the opinion that he issued the other day uh, prior to trial was one of the most outrageous opinions I've ever read, shows clear bias on his part against President Trump. Uh, in that case previously, New York's appellate division has overruled uh, that judge's rulings from the bench. I expect we'll see more of that in days to come. But I think it's just really important to note that President Trump, while he's a candidate for president, is being forced to spend his time in courtrooms across America now. Uh, I think it's political interference. I think it's intended to be political interference with President Trump's right to campaign. And I think that's just not the way that democracy is supposed to work in the United States of America. A little more background on Judge Angoran. He was associated with the ACLU, and he also is a big fan of some comedy. What more can you tell us about the judge? Well, he's made statements in the past, essentially indicating that he tries to put his finger on the scale, that he's not just an unbiased arbiter the way that most judges view their vocation, uh, but that he views his role as really shaping events in his courtroom. Now, that's really not the way that judging is supposed to work. Judges are supposed to apply the law in an even way, an even-handed way. And I think that based on that opinion he issued the other day, uh, he has it in for President Trump. And I think it's very difficult to see how President Trump gets a fair trial in front of him. Great hearing your analysis. Will Shar, former federal prosecutor, thank you. Great to be with you. Thank you. Coming up, a girl snowboarding coach says he was accused of bullying and fired for expressing his views on boys playing in girls sports. NTD spoke with a legal firm alliance defending freedom. The ongoing UAW strike is still growing steadily, costing manufacturing companies billions of dollars so far. Student loan repayments resume this month after a three-year pause. While the Biden administration continues its debt cancellation efforts, 44 million borrowers need to figure out a payment plan. And police in Slovakia had the surprise of their lives when they caught a dog behind the wheel. More coming up. It's good to have you back with us. A high school girls snowboarding coach says he expressed his view that males have an advantage in sports when playing against females and got fired the next day. Entity's Daniel Monahan spoke with the legal firm Alliance Defending Freedom about the case. Coach David Block says he founded the snowboarding team at Woodstock Union High School in Vermont and served as head coach for the entire life of the program. The team has had enormous success, including several individual state champions. In February, Block says he and his team were set to compete against a school that had a male snowboarder who identifies as a female and competes against females. During downtime in the lodge, Block says he and his team were sitting at a table when two of his athletes began to discuss males competing against females. Attorney Tyson Langhofer discusses what happened next. Coach Block stepped in and essentially acknowledged that uh, the biological reality that, that men do have a competitive advantage over women and th that it would be unfair to allow men to compete against women. 
According to Langhofer, the conversation was respectful and took place entirely outside the presence of the male snowboarder who identifies as female. The attorney says Block was called in early the next morning to the athletic director's office. They asked him what had happened. He told him exactly what had happened. And uh, later that day, he met with the superintendent. Superintendent slipped a letter across the desk and said, you're fired uh, for uh, in violating the school's harassment, hazing, and bullying policy. Langhofer says Coach Block's file was completely clean. He had never had any complaints from any parents about any situation. There have been no reprimands. He had never had any discussion with the school regarding how, um, you know, what their uh, terms of their policy were and how they think that, that it applies in discussing uh, these matters, which many people are, are clearly discussing. The attorney sees a double standard at play. Well, I think that the worst violation is this. The school allows individuals to discuss differences in gender if it adopts the position that um, you know, gender identity is determined by feelings. Um, and it, but if you discuss biological facts and you dis discuss it uh, on the differences biologically between men and women, that viewpoint is not allowed. And I mean, males and females are different. Stating that fact should not have gotten Coach Block fired. Alliance Defending Freedom is representing Coach Block in a lawsuit to restore him to his position as coach. The legal firm also aims to stop Vermont and school district officials from enforcing what they call unconstitutional policies that censor protected speech. NTD reached out to Woodstock Union High School in Vermont and is still waiting to hear back from them. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Turning now to the ongoing United Auto Workers strike, which is taking a toll on the auto supply chain and industry as losses continue to mount. According to a report by Anderson Economic Group, the strike against the Detroit three automakers has led to nearly $4 billion in economic losses so far, with almost half of that attributed to supplier losses. The strike affecting General Motors, Ford and Stellantis has led to over $1 billion in manufacturing declines and $325 million in lost wages for workers over the first two weeks. That's with additional costs to suppliers, dealers and consumers accounted for. The strike initiated by the UAW has steadily grown since it began last month, with thousands of workers walking off the job and impacting the supply chain. And you know, it sounds like that once the strike concludes, ramping back up to full, uh, full production would be challenging for suppliers. Yeah, due to labor shortages, other factors like delayed products from previous labor strikes and shelf right. life issues even. Right. We're going to turn now to education. Student loan payments resume this month after a three-year pause. While the Biden administration maintains its plans is to cancel student debt, borrowers are going to have to tackle what they owe for now. Entity's Andrew Thomas spoke with an analyst at Bankrate to learn more. The pandemic put student loan payments on hold. But starting this month, 44 million borrowers will have to start making payments again. Bankrate analyst Sarah Foster explained how some Americans managed that money during the three-year pause. Because we know that borrowers, they, they had a choice of what to do with the money that was freed up. They saved it in some instances, and many of those were higher-income Americans but others used it to fund essential purchases in the face of high inflation. 
According to a bank rate survey in July, almost a quarter of respondents said borrowing too much for college was their most significant financial regret. The restart on payments comes at a particularly difficult time for borrowers. I'm worried about what the return of student loan payments can mean for Americans because it is happening in this era of higher inflation. And we know that Americans have been taking on debt. I mean, credit card debt hit a record high. Household debt in general is reaching record levels. 56% of Americans' bank rate surveyed in August said college today is too expensive, regardless of whether they have debt or not. We did see that Americans were kind of aligned on the idea that college tuition has gotten too expensive, even you know if they never borrowed for their education. For many, the prospect of tackling student debt in the near term may seem overwhelming, but they have a couple of options. Borrowers who are paying back their debt, they have two options. They can find a payment plan that's based on the amount of money that they owe in student loan debt, or they could find a payment plan that's based on the amount of income that they make. The Department of Education offers four income-based repayment plans. That includes the Biden administration's Saving on a Valuable Education plan announced in August. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And to learn how this will impact the economy and the wallets of over 40 million Americans, I spoke to NTD business host Don Ma. So 40 million Americans, how will it affect the economy? Yeah, Evelyn, that's a very important question. Um, so what I think is not only is this going to impact households, but it's also going to, you know, have a substantial impact on the economy. So let's just think about this for a moment. First of all, the U.S. economy it's very consumer driven. So consumer spending accounts for you know, around 70% of US gross domestic product. Uh, that's a very important point. We have to keep that in mind. And what the resumption of student loan payments means is that uh, people will have less disposable income every month. Um, so if there's around 40 million Americans who owe student debt and each person averages uh, somewhere around uh, $300, some more, some a bit less, you know, that totals around $1.7 trillion that could be taken out of the economy. Uh, now, it's, it's hard for anyone to, you know, predict the future when it comes to the economy. But this definitely has the potential to slow it down when you're taking that much money out of it slow it down as in there is a potential to uh to go into recession uh you know there's there's a saying that uh you should never bet against the consumer and the reason for that is because they seem to uh frequently be able to come up with money from somewhere so i don't want to say definitively that this could cause a recession but you know on the other hand i don't want to discount the possibility either uh the chief economist at moody's analytics said that uh, the economy will struggle in the fourth quarter. So will we see a recession? You know, it, it, time will only tell. Um, but I think what will directly be impacted are businesses like retailers, um, you know, like Macy's, Target, Best Buy, outlets like those. And Evelyn, there's another twist to this because the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has also found that student loan borrowers have fallen deeper into debt actually during the pandemic. And what that means is that more than half of borrowers actually have higher debt than they did before the pause on student loans. So all I can say is that there will be an impact on the economy. It's just a question of severity.
And with the Paris Olympics less than a year away, French authorities are determined not to let the bedbugs bite during the games. Authorities have started a drive to exterminate the pests from public transport, cinemas, and other places. Social media users in recent weeks have been publishing footage of the insects crawling around in high-speed trains and in the Paris metro alongside a rash of online articles about bedbugs in cinemas and even the Charles de Gaulle airport. The reports have reached the highest levels of government. Transport Minister Clement Bone is set to discuss the issue with transport operators this week. The situation got so intense that it traveled to Morocco. Bedbugs were discovered by port authorities in Tangier on a passenger ferry arriving from Marseille in southern France yesterday. It was the first time Moroccan officials had noted bedbugs from France on the move. Oh yeah, you got to clean that up. Yeah, it just gives me goosebumps thinking about it. So it's near the end of our program. We're going to jump into some FUD headlines now. That's right. Slovakian police couldn't believe their eyes when they pulled over a car with a dog who seemed to be driving. They find the driver after speed cameras photographed a dog in the driver's seat of a car. The driver allegedly said that the dog suddenly jumped over his knees while driving. Pause in the air. (laughs) Police disputed that claim, noting their camera footage didn't show any sudden movements in the driver's seat. I don't think the dog really understood that command. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I wonder if there's a driving school for dogs. Well, it looks like there has to be somewhere. <laughs> and NASA released photos of Pan, which is a moon orbiting Saturn. Look at that thing. And NASA asked Instagram viewers if they thought the moon resembled ravioli or an empanada. Scientists explained that the unique shape comes from a ridge around the moon's equator. Well, I think I'd vote ravioli here. That's because I had it yesterday, so it's on top of my mind. (laughs) Okay, a little space food for us. All right. (laughs) Yeah, great images, not seen before. (laughs) Because there's moon cheese, and now there's moon ravioli, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Why not? Why not? It's all about food. All right, that's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you, as always, at goodmorning at ntd.com. Write us if you have any feedback or anything that you'd like to let us know. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.